Okay, so uh, before we jump into the text, which is going to be 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> I want to talk to the kids. Uh, kids, I want to tell you what this passage is about, uh, and then you can go home and talk to your parents about this stuff, because this is actually pretty cool stuff, okay? So I want to tell you a story. <clears throat> when I was a kid, my parents, when I was like your age, my parents took me and my brother and my sister on a summer vacation. We went to Florida. I'd never been to Florida. Uh, we heard it was beautiful. It was awesome. <clears throat> Super fun place. We get to the hotel, and uh, we get in from our flight, and we get to the hotel, and it's, and it's late. <clears throat> it's at nighttime. But this is the most amazing, beautiful hotel I've ever seen. It's incredible. The rooms we have, they're super nice. And we got in late, so we thought, uh, it's bedtime. My parents turned to me, and they're like, hey, do y'all want to go swim in the pool? I'm like, late night swim in the pool? Best vacation ever, yes. And so we go to the pool. This pool, it's the biggest, most awesome pool I've ever seen. It wraps around the whole back of the hotel. It's got all these diving boards. It's got all these slides. It's got these huge waterfalls, and like the water's changing color, like in the waterfalls. We come up, we're like, oh, like this is incredible. We get, you know, we're swimming. The waiters are bringing us drinks to the pool, like another Coke, please. Yes, vacay, woo. Um, and then, and so we look at my mom and dad, and we tell them, this is, this is the best vacation ever. And my mom and dad looked at me, and they said, y'all, this is the hotel. Tomorrow, we go to Disney World. And we knew that. We, like, we knew that's why we were going to Florida. We were going to Disney World. We get to the hotel. The hotel's so awesome. We look at our mom and dad. We're like, you know, hey, we could, we could stay here. Uh, if we just stayed here all week, that would be great. And my mom and dad look at me and they say, just wait. And they were right. So here's my question to you kids. Kids, what is like the big thing that you were waiting for, like the most awesome, awesome place you're ever, ever going to go, what do we think it is? We've got one hand up here. Peyton? Heaven? Francis, what do you... Heaven. This is good. <laughs> I can't even see there. Paul, is that you? What do you think, Paul? Heaven. <laughs> heaven, heaven, heaven. Y'all, heaven is. It's the... <laughs> God. Fishing in Scotland. No, kids. Wrong. Heaven. Heaven. We want to go to heaven, right? But here's like, kids, you may be hearing this for the first time. I want you to hear this. Heaven is so awesome. Heaven is like the hotel before the really awesome thing that comes next after heaven. As in, kids, did you know that this world, people think this world is going to go on forever and ever and ever. It's not. This world is not going to go on forever because at some point Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring everybody who's in heaven with him back with him, and he's going to reunite their souls and their bodies and raise us all up from the dead so that not only do we have souls alive, but we have souls and bodies alive. And he's going to make earth new earth. He's basically going to take heaven and earth and make them one thing heaven on earth and it's going to be the most amazing place ever no sin no suffering no bad stuff only awesomeness forever and ever and ever and ever where the next day gets better and better and better y'all that is our real 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 hope that's what we're going to be talking about today in second thessalonians so uh, this spring 
we are uh, we're looking at the Apostle Paul's first and second letters to the Thessalonians, uh, uh, and uh, two of Paul's earliest letters to the early church. And he is dealing with Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died for our sins, he has been raised from the dead, he has gone back up into heaven, and now the big question is, now what? And so Paul's answering that question with his first and his second letter to the Thessalonians. What do we do in the meantime? Last week, we just started 2 Thessalonians. Uh, and he wrote 2 Thessalonians weeks, maybe months, after he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and it, and what, we, what we said last time, it might seem like, if you were here last time, it might seem like what we're talking about this time has nothing to do with what we talked about last time. A lot of people have a problem moving from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But, but remember, 2 Thessalonians 1 starts out the way 1 Thessalonians 1 did. And the big point there is, y'all, y'all, I, remember what I've already told you. Because then he's going to go into chapter 2, and it sounds like this is new stuff. Like, where is this coming from? It's not. He even says that in this passage. We have talked about this stuff before. So that's the flow, is he's reminding them of, of stuff he's already told them that they have forgotten. And now, just heads up, this is one of those passages, one of those, uh, as in this is, uh, it gets a lot of buzz because it's, it's known as one of, if not the hardest passage in the Bible to understand, uh, and because it's about the end of the world type stuff. So tons and tons of buzz about this passage, but this is not just about the end of the world, as in it's crucially important to how we live day to day, today, right now. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness... Is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception. For those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, 
but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Right, this, this stuff, it should sound, it should sound familiar uh, as it did uh, uh, to the ears of the Thessalonians uh, because Paul has talked about this stuff uh, back in 1 Thessalonians. And at the, just a little reminder, refresher, at the end of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, Paul says that he is not going to talk to the Thessalonians about the times and the dates about when Jesus is coming back. This is not doing it, y'all. Stop it. When Paul first wrote to the Thessalonians, he hears that they are coming up with these timetables, these specific timetables for the day and the hour of Jesus's return. So Paul says at the end of that first letter, 1 Thessalonians, that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief comes in the night. So you cannot obsess over the nearness or the farness of Jesus' return because it is impossible to predict. It's nonsensical to sit around day after day speculating, okay, what, what, this has happened, mm but this hasn't happened yet. But I could see how this could happen like right now. And so maybe it is really near, but you know, and on and on you go and Paul's like, stop. Jesus is coming back like a thief in the night. Thieves do not show up on schedule. Thieves do not announce their ETA. It's not how it works. There are no timetables on Jesus. But then, but then, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and here's where people accuse Paul of being a flip-flopper. Uh, because now he's giving some clues. Ooh, he's giving us some signs as to when we should expect Jesus to return. Flip-flopper. No. Context. In 1 Thessalonians, the church was getting harassed by a teaching that was obsessed with trying to predict when Jesus would return. And now we see, here's the occasion of 2 Thessalonians. Just weeks, maybe months later, after his first letter, Paul learns that the Thessalonians are now being duped uh, in another way, being duped by, verse 2, by their own fears and consciences, by lies and misunderstandings in the church, and by false teachers who are pretenders. They're pretending to be with Paul. So they are being duped in the other direction. That this day of the Lord, it's already come and gone. It's already been realized that Jesus coming back is already past. And we hear that and we can think, dummies, like, come on, how could you be duped into thinking that Jesus has already come back? But that's sadly what has happened to much of the church in our day. As in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had to deal with the over-obsession of when Jesus was coming back. And now in 2 Thessalonians, he is dealing with an under-appreciation. He's dealing with a lack of interest, a carelessness, a forgetfulness that has turned into an ignorance for the second coming of Jesus. And lots and lots and lots of people today in the church, they live their lives with that kind of underappreciation, lack of interest, carelessness, forgetfulness that has become ignorance of the second coming of Jesus. So many in the church today, when they do hear this kind of stuff, 
when they do hear this, they respond. One of the responses is like, wait, Jesus is coming back? Like, I thought we just, I thought we die. If we believe, we go to heaven, and on and on and on the world goes. Like, forever. No. Uh, and, and if this, that's one response, but if this second coming of Jesus is, is actually ever really discussed in some specific terms, it then gets explained away uh, in the sense that, well, that just refers to some uh, spiritual reality. Like, uh, this is about Jesus coming into your heart when you believe. That spiritual resurrection we talk about. He comes to you, and then when you die, you go to him, your soul goes to him, and uh, then you get to be with him again in heaven forever. And thus, most of the church uh, today does not talk about Jesus coming back again as an historical event. And so Paul gives the church a sign he gives us a sign that we would give a care about this most important event in history on par with the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that brings the history of this world to a close. The sign that Paul gives uh, is that there is something happening in the world right now. It's been happening, and it's going to come to a head right before Jesus comes back. The sign of what's coming to a head before Jesus returns is the man of lawlessness. And the big question is, who is the man of lawlessness? And it depends on who you ask. But you're asking me, I'm going to give you the right answer. I'm going to give you the biblical answer. There are a lot, and we could rehearse them. If you want to hear the other ones after, come find them. There's just too long to go through. Uh, uh, the majority of them. So I'm just going to give you the right one. Uh, and, and here it is. The correct biblical view says that Paul, uh, when he's talking about the day of the Lord, he is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the day of the Lord clearly means in 1 Thessalonians 5. So you go back to his most nearest reference. Day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 is clearly about Jesus coming back at the end of the world. So the day of the Lord, it, 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 that's how Paul always talks about it in his letters. That's how the Bible always talks about it in the New Testament. Second uh, Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There it is again. This is Peter. This is a different apostle saying the same thing Paul's saying. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's judgment day. And the reference, so that's day of the Lord, we're getting to man of lawlessness, that's day of the Lord. The reference to the temple, you know, the temple here where the man of lawlessness is going to come and set up shop in the temple, the reference to the temple there symbolically refers to the church, not to the physical building temple in Jerusalem. The Old Testament uses the word temple and the word house in the metaphorical sense more often uh, to refer to the house of Israel, as in God's covenant community. And here's the point. Here's the point of that physical tabernacle tent thing in the desert that becomes the, the temple thing in Jerusalem, the building. The point is the design, the point of the physical temple house is to function as a symbol of the people house which is the true residence of God. 
saying God dwells in the Old Testament Jerusalem temple as a symbol of the fact and awesome reality that he actually dwells in the midst of his people. And Paul really said this stuff. Ephesians 2 is another letter of Paul. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's where we get our name. Uh, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so... This man of lawlessness is someone who is going to persecute the church before Jesus comes back. Set up shop in the temple uh, and, and uh, lay claim to godhood. And the question is, is that all we can know? Is there anything more we can know about this? About this guy? What we need to say up front is we need to humbly admit that this is not, we've said it at the beginning, this is not an easy passage. But it's not an impossible passage. Just think about what more do we know about this man of lawlessness from this passage? It says this, the coming of the man of lawlessness is brought about, this is verse 9, it's the coming of the man of lawlessness is brought about and empowered by none other than the devil, Satan. And the language there in verse 9 of the man of lawlessness coming by the, quote, activity of Satan that is the language of energizing. It's, it's the language, of, it's like possession. It's like embodiment. Which means Satan cannot pull off an incarnation. This is as close as he can get. This is a pseudo-incarnation of the man of lawlessness by the power of the devil. Then it says the manner of the appearing of the man of lawlessness on the stage of history is called a parousia. Now, that's the same, that's the same, in verses 8 and 9, that's the same word that's used to describe Jesus' appearing on the stage of world history at the end of history. Uh, it's the same exact word that's used for Jesus' appearing. Here is the man of lawlessness appearing. And uh, the man of lawlessness, parousia, results in a great gathering of people. Many leaving the church to follow him. And you ask, how? How? Why would that happen? Well, because he is empowered by Satan. This, this man of lawlessness will perform, verse 9, supernatural signs and wonders, validating his claims and convincing lots and lots of people to follow him. There's more. This man of lawlessness, will, we've said, will exalt himself to a place. He's, he's going to exalt himself, not just celebrity and fame. That's not what he's going for. He's going for literal worship. And he's going to exalt himself above every other rival claimant uh, to worship, whether it's religious or otherwise. He wants it all. The man of lawlessness uh, 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 taking the seat in the temple, that is about demanding worship in the place of God. Now, who does that sound like? You can say it. Well, it sounds like Jesus. That Paul is super clear here that the way he's describing the man of lawlessness, this is a counterfeit Jesus Christ. And this is why he's identified elsewhere in the Bible as the 
antichrist. That's who the man of lawlessness is. And, and unfortunately, too many stop there, right there at that point, and conclude, okay, therefore we can't, well, here's what we know, we can't know any more about this person. And to stop there and say that actually really isn't that helpful. I mean, so far they say, okay, what, what good is this to us? But there's more that we can say. As in, we've got to recognize that this man of lawlessness imagery, it's really clearly from the Old Testament. That Paul is using these, these Old Testament prophecies, specifically from Daniel chapter 7 to 12. There's this man of lawlessness there who exalts himself above all other rival kings and even God himself, and he persecutes the people of God nearly out of existence. And in the Daniel prophecies, that man of lawlessness, this antichrist figure, he is a political figure. He is a usurper king. He is the head of the state. So the Old Testament imagery from Daniel and imagery from, you know, then there's imagery from Genesis, there's imagery from Ezekiel, there's imagery from Zechariah, all these Old Testament uh, uh, books. It, that stuff is picked up in the New Testament, not just here in Second Thessalonians, but other places like the Gospels, like First John, like Revelation, that super imagery book. Uh, and, and, and really, you look at Revelation 13, 19, 20, this same figure is depicted as the head of the beast. There's this weird, freaky, monstrous imagery, uh, graphic imagery of this beast that stands for the corrupted political institution of the city-state. There's a lot of debate about whether we can identify the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, as is he a religious figure? Or is he a political figure? Or is he a philosopher? Or is he going to be like a private citizen, super powerful CEO? The scriptures point out that the main enemies of the church are the devil, Satan. We know we got that one, okay? Uh, it's uh, and his and his demons, his followers. Uh, it's our own sin which leads to death. So death, sin, and death. Uh, it's the false heretical church that persecutes the true church. Uh, and it is the corrupted state that persecutes the church. The scriptures teach that, and the scriptures teach that this man of lawlessness, he's a political figure. He is the head of the state in its most corrupt form at the end of the world. Uh, and, and this is why he is called, this is why he's called a man of lawlessness. As in that, the literal translation uh, is, is this one that, uh, this is the one that is against the law, but not in the sense of like the, the Antichrist is the most disobedient person who's ever lived. Like, hey, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways and I don't care. It's like not that kind of disobedience, lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is the one who says, who's to say what's right and wrong? I do. brought this uh, up before church historian and author Carl Truman recently came out with uh, a new book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. It's a cultural analysis written to, it's, it's, it's very heavy, it, it's a lot of sociology, a lot of history. It's, a, it's cultural analysis written to help Christians understand why so many unquestioned orthodoxies of the past, like marriage, 
like sex and gender, like identity, like a common nature bond between all of mankind. Why this fell, why these common unquestioned orthodoxies fell so rapidly, and how the modern understanding, the modern understandings of you know, sex, identity, these things have become, the new modern understandings, how have these become the new unquestioned orthodoxies where, where we no longer reflect on them in, in any critical way, but apparently we are just convinced that they are simply a natural part of our existence. So he goes through a whole long book, 400 pages. Uh, his conclusion is that, uh, listen, the, the, what it has come down to is uh, uh, aesthetic sense, is the new morality. He points out that arguments for making sentiments, for making feelings, for making instincts, the foundation for ethics, inevitably is the same thing as making aesthetic sense, the judge between what's good and what's bad. And, and, and Truman's not the first one to point this out. This is, this is uh, been pointed out by many um, theologians, uh, sociologists, philosophers, uh, that what we have today, truth, has become a matter of taste. Ethically speaking, you could do it the other way too. Taste and desire becomes truth. But that's where we are. And Paul says, this is, this, is the, this is the lawlessness that Paul's talking about. And Paul says in verse 7 that this mystery of lawlessness, this is actually not, it's not brand new. It's, it's already at work. It's been at work. Isn't, this has been around since the fall. And, and, and you know, here, we need an illustration. This is illustration time, okay? Uh, we, we could illustrate the many instances of men of lawlessness uh, 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 as the, these heads of states. Uh, we, could, we could go that way. But I, truly, the best illustration, the best explanation of how we got here is the biblical one. Let me just give you a biblical illustration. You don't always want to illustrate the Bible with the Bible except this really is the best illustration, explanation. Uh, just go back to the very first two brothers in history, uh, Cain and Abel. And what, and what happens tragically, terribly, the older brother kills his younger brother. The very first two brothers, one kills the other one. He murders his brother, and afterward, God kicks him out of the uh, covenant family, and Cain complains. He complains that now the other family members now or in the future, someone's going to come along and kill him for what he did to Abel. And so he says to God, God, you're exiling me out of the covenant community, but I don't have a chance out there. It's going to be a lawless world. And they're going to, they're going to be able to kill me immediately. Someone's going to do it. And God listens to Cain's appeal, and he pledges a promise to Cain. He says that there will be law and order. There's not going to be vigilante justice. No, not even in this fallen world. We're not going to do law of the jungle. There's going to be an administration of justice. And so what God does is he promises that if anyone kills Cain, he will be avenged sevenfold by God himself. As in God pledges this to Cain, and he gives Cain the authority to go and build the first city. The city is God's idea. This institution of the political state, that's God's idea, that's God's institution, meant to be a measure of justice and peace in a fallen world. 
that's crazy that's incredible that the first city is built by cain who benefited from god but who is not a follower of god and the city is going to be this place shared by believers and unbelievers and there would be some sort of law, rule of government. Man would not be abandoned to chaotic lawlessness in the world. And you read on in this you know, very fascinating chapter in Genesis 4 at the beginning. You read on in the line of Cain's descendants, and you read about the development of the city. You read about this crazy awesome stuff, people working together, people producing together, culture growing, that there's a way for friendship between believers and unbelievers is the message. And, and there's now law and judicial punishment for law-breaking all to maintain peace. The city was given by God to all mankind as a gift. Okay, now here's the illustration gets interesting. The city gets messed up from the beginning because it's developed by messed up people, you know, the sinners. Uh, and the story of Cain in Genesis 4, it climaxes with Cain's descendant, this guy Lamech, who is the first tyrannical king in history. What we read, we read about this king, Lamech, and we hear about his gross uh, 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 tyranny uh, in his song. There's a song that he sings in, in Genesis 4. Listen, listen to this song. He sings it to his wives. It says this, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. You hear that song, and you might think, Lamech, your song is lame. Uh, but it's like this, y'all, this song is, it's like, this is crazy. Did you hear this? Lamech here, he is despising the institution of the family because he's got two wives. He's, just, uh, he's despising marriage that God had set up because he's practicing bigamy, marrying two wives. He's also despising the institution of the state that God set up for law and order. You know, the, the original one was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just like e equitable, equal justice. That's the idea. And Lamech boasts of his own measure of justice. It's not eye for eye. It's not tooth for tooth. It's not life for life. It's that if someone bruises Lamech, kills him. Someone offends him, off with their head. This is a tyrant. But that is not the height of his lawlessness. Lamech is also despising God himself. And as you read, he's despising the covenant, uh, the, the community of God institution. Lamech claims to be a super God here. God had promised to Cain there would be an administration of justice, sevenfold justice. That's using that number seven, that symbolism stuff, to say complete, full justice, like true justice, just justice. Lamech mocks God and says, <laughs> who cares if the supposed creator was able to avenge Cain sevenfold big deal I avenge myself seventyfold plus seven he is claiming to be super God the God above the God creator he, 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 uh, he thinks he's God he thinks he's greater uh, this is the antichrist syndrome this is what Antichrist, this is what the man of lawlessness is. He's the head of state who exalts himself above God himself. And the way Genesis is organized, if you read it the way uh, Moses has organized it, we're supposed to understand 
that this is what leads up to the flood. The state has so persecuted and nearly wiped out the people of God so that Noah and his family, they're the only ones left. God has to come in judgment in order to save them. And the New Testament says that that is where we are headed again. That that's the pattern of history. It happened once, happened, happened once in a very symbolic, real way. But that's where we're going again. In 1 John 2.18, he says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So we know this. We know this. Uh, the, the, the mystery of lawlessness, the spirit of lawlessness, it's been around. It's been around since the fall, but it's getting worse. And Paul says one final one is coming, and this man of lawlessness, he's going to be different from the other ones that have come before. He's going to be different from the other antichrists that have come before because they were restrained. He says here, this one will not be restrained for a while at the end. And his deception will be worldwide. It will be global. And at the end, this is it's the bleak picture of the end of history. At the end, the Antichrist will seem to be victorious because the church will be so persecuted and so small. And the big question is for us, okay, so wait, what about today? Like we said, this wasn't just in the world. So it's like, what about today, today? Here's what this does not mean. Here's the, like, the not so what. I want to know the so what. Here's the not so what. This does not mean Christians should separate from the state. This does not mean that Christians should hate politics. The city-state is still a gift of God. Yes, it's been corrupted. It's still legitimate. Most obvious example for the readers of this letter is Rome, the world in which they live. Rome legalized idolatry. They persecuted Christians. And yet Paul says in another uh, letter later, Romans 13, when the persecution has gotten much worse by this point, he says to submit to the government because it's legitimate. And obviously we see in Scripture, let me temper that, we see in Scripture too, that when the government commands us to sin or to not do something we're supposed to do, we've got to choose God. We've got to choose Jesus over the government. So we don't let the government violate our Christian consciences, but the general rule is we are to submit to the government because it is legitimate. Even though at another level what they want to do ultimately with the city, it's, it's not of God. But that's, that's the beauty of politics. That's why we have politics. Politics. Who, made, who invented politics? God. The express purpose of politics of the city is the means for believers and unbelievers to figure out how to live together. Peacefully coexist. Live and love each other in community. So that's what and we, could, we, could, we could say a lot more there. Y'all get to go home and have all those fun, wonderful conversations around the dinner table tonight. Um, that's the not so what. We're not going to run away from the state. We're not going to run into a cave. And uh, we're going to continue um, uh, sharing uh, as citizens in this state responsibly. The so what. Here's the so what. P what Paul is saying here is beware of the counterfeit. Like he's coming. Beware of it. It's at work right now. Beware of the counterfeit. There's this YouTube clip. Uh, of one of the late night show uh, hosts uh, he's, he's poking fun at this uh, trend that's kicked off in LA uh, cold pressed natural juices 
I, this was a couple years ago, but these machines, there are these machines that don't use as much heat and they don't oxidize as many nutrients. So it's so, something like that. And it's super, super healthy juice, okay? Cold press, natural juices. So the joke is they send, the show sends uh, people to a farmer's market to give out samples of their own brand of juice, uh, telling everyone that it's organic, that it's natural cold pressed juice. The first juice is called Soul. And it's just, uh, it's fun dip mixed with water. Another one is called Detox. And it's just thawed blended uh, creamsicles. Uh, another one is called Rainbow. <laughs> it's just a pound of Skittles blended up with water. Uh, and so the people blind taste this stuff. Now here's some of the quotes and the responses. One, one guy says, drinks it. Oh, I feel great. It's lighter. It's definitely cleansing. Girl, one girl says, it just feels uh, refreshing, like you just drank something good for you. It's not chemically. Uh, it's a sigh of relief. <laughs> and another guy says, it's so fresh. I feel like I, feel like I could go for a jog right now. <laughs> another, guy, another guy says, yeah, I would drink it regularly. It's not too sugary, like a lot of juices are now. It's, it's natural. And then the reporter asks, are you getting the kale? And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm getting the, I'm getting the kale. Uh, and then the reporter asks one, uh, one woman, she says, do you think it's worth the $19 price tag? And the lady pauses and thinks about it, and she says, yes, your health is everything. Okay, so obviously from the outside looking in, we know they're drinking garbage. But they didn't, and they bought into the counterfeit. And if they continued on with that counterfeit, it would kill them. Now, uh, uh, here's another attempt. Uh, we've got to come to a close right here, right at the end, really fast. Another attempt at counterfeit of Jesus. This other attempt at, a, at counterfeiting Jesus by the man of lawlessness. It's not, it's not here, uh, but it is in Revelation 13. And it says this. One of the beast's heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And in the Greek, that phrase actually translates the beast had a wound as slain. It's the same phrase that's used to describe Jesus in Revelation 5, this thing we just sang about, worthy is the lamb. At the throne, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Same language. So what this is referring to, this, this counterfeit head of the beast, is referring to the, the head of the state, beast state, surviving Jesus' first coming. As in when Jesus first came, everyone thought he would deal the death blow to the Roman Empire, but he didn't. Or did he? The devil wants you to believe that the world outlives Jesus. That the world does not need Jesus. That this world will go on just as it is forever and ever and ever. And that the problems that you do have, the state. The state is the answer to your every problem. That you owe your allegiance and love to the state. That is a deception. In Jesus' life and in his death and in his resurrection to eternal life, uh, Jesus has overcome all our sin. And he's provided the permanent solution to our suffering. He's provided the permanent solution to our death. He's provided the permanent solution and he's opened the way to our true home, which is the city of God.
And in the end, this man of lawlessness hears the good news. He does not win. Jesus is coming back because you do not worship a dead Savior. Loved ones, Jesus is risen. And as another New Testament scholar put it, the Son of God has reclaimed his former glory, and the world has never been, and nor will it ever be the same again, because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And he has ascended into heaven, and he has approached the ancient of days to receive his kingdom, and he has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. And he now reigns from heaven with all authority and with all dominion, waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to present himself to his bride, us, the church, bodily transformed into his likeness without spot or wrinkle, perfect, glorified. And with the state does not destroy sin, only Jesus does. And we cannot confuse the city of man with the city of God. The city of man only offers temporary benefits and loved ones it does offer temporary benefits it is a gift of god but it does not offer eternal benefits and so we cannot fix our hopes day to day this is where you go and you're like the so what is day to day stop fixing your hopes on the city of man it is destined to perish at some point doesn't mean we don't work in it and work for the peace of it right now we just don't put our hope in it our ultimate hope in it Jesus has saved you. Put your faith in him. Our hope is in the ultimate kingdom that Jesus is bringing, and he is bringing it through his church, preaching the gospel in the world. And in the end, whenever that end is, Jesus really wins. And because we're with him, so do we. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Even incredibly hard passages like this one, we thank you for it because it is life, uh, because it is uh, uh, expressly our hope. That as hard as this passage is, uh, Lord, we can see from it that Jesus really does win and that Jesus really is our hope and our salvation. We pray that whatever today looks like and whatever the next day, this next year, the year to come, should you tarry, should you wait to come back before next year, Lord, uh, that you would continue to sustain us today and the next day in this great hope that we have in our risen Lord and Savior, that we would call others, that we would encourage others to put their faith in our Lord and Savior. Father, as, as we continue to love uh, our brothers and sisters and to love uh, uh, those who do not believe what we believe, to love even our enemies. Give us that kind of faith. Give us that kind of hope, that kind of assurance that this is not the end. This life is not the end. Uh, and that even heaven is not the end. Jesus coming back, new heavens, new earth. That glorious future that has no ending. Give us hope for that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.